0: attention citizens it's time for super pulp science hello welcome to super pulp science where we talk about how genre gets made we have a special episode for you uh, today which we are stealing from somebody else justin and i were uh, guests of sky thorleafson on his podcast, Adaptational, and one of the caveats of doing the podcast was that we would be given the unedited audio file for our long-suffering producer, Dan, to then re-edit for our own podcast. So they say that um, good artists borrow and great artists steal, so this is us doing just that. Do you have anything to add to that, Justin?
1: It was a great conversation at, uh, at FanQuest, and I'd, I'd like to go back again sometime.
0: To the conversation or to, they, to FanQuest?
1: Yeah, I'd like to be guests again on Adaptational. It was a great, it was fun, fun yeah. conversation.
0: Yeah. So as far as I understand it, Sky is new to the podcasting game, but he, uh, I think, um, acquitted himself very well. He asked some pretty probing questions about yeah. some of our process, which and I he was He really keen did his answer.
1: research, too. He knew all about us.
0: I know, yeah. As we were leading up to this podcast, dear listener, um, Sky started asking a whole bunch of questions that showed some deep, understanding of things that we had done in our past which we are not used to in interviews um, usually we certainly don't research our guests <laughs> uh, that is untrue sometimes <laughs> um, without further ado we are going to cut into this episode of Superpulp science which is this episode of adaptational <laughs>
2: guests. I am so excited to be talking with these gentlemen about one of their prominent collaborations, GMB Kamichuk and Justin Curry. Hello. Thanks for having us.
0: Yeah. Thanks,
1: Sky.
2: Thank you so much for being a part of this. I am really excited to talk about this. Before we discuss uh, the, the subject of the episode, uh, Cassie and Tom, I want to ask you just a couple of questions because you both host the um, you both host. The Super Pulp Science podcast, as well as being writers and illustrators, your podcast hosts, um, and some you, of us more willing than others. That's
0: right. <laughs> Justin is the long-suffering co-host of Super Pulp Science.
2: Ah, uh, okay. Well, at the end, uh, you focus a lot on about the creation of um, genre in on your show. But how often have you? Uh, how often is the subject of adaptation come across your table?
0: Not very often. I think it's one of the reasons why we agreed to do this podcast. Because it's a conversation we haven't really had um, as broadly as you cover here. I mean, we've talked about what would happen if this book got optioned or that book got optioned.
1: But we don't go down that rabbit hole very, very often. No, yeah. no. no. Like jumping from media to media. We always talk about making graphic novels, but like, what if about a video game after that? Or a TV show or a movie? We... Yeah, we don't talk about that too often, and it's really, like, isn't that kind of the end goal of a lot of these projects? You hope that they're successful enough to, like, make the leap into a whole new medium?
0: Well, you want them to be right in their own way, but then also be able to, you know, transfer to other mediums, I think, is important. Cassian Tonk has, um, we're on the very tippity tip of actually adapting Cassian Tonk into an animated uh project oh, right now
1: so we we have gone yeah we we're doing the process right now so we know yeah.
2: all about it oh <laughs> wow oh I, this is going to be so much fun <laughs> um that, so let's talk actually why don't we let's talk about uh cassian tonk the book as uh, as a book to start off with um but Why don't we just give a brief synopsis of the story to start off with for people who are unfamiliar with the story.
0: Okay, so Cassie and Tonk is the story of a girl and her robot at the end of the world. Um, We all have someone that we love and we all have someone that we'll lose and it's a story about that relationship. It doesn't tell you how you're supposed to feel about it. It just sort of sets it up as a, uh, a true part of life. That life is not... Forever. Mm.
2: That's a very, and that's a very powerful message in a way. And I think that it's very interesting to be talking about a children's book that explores that kind of theme uh, that is very, very different At times, some people are very scared of telling children about that kind of story, I feel.
0: Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, I have two children, and when I was working on *Casting Tonk*, we were reading. You know, we would read all the time. We'd read every night, three or four books. And one of the things that struck me is you have this this great moment to have real, lasting conversations with your with the young people in your life, um, based on the subjects that you're reading. And there are only so many books about sharing that I want (laughs) to read about anymore, right? You're like, it's good. It's important to share. All the books that, but that's covered. We got that covered. And I just felt like there were some deeper um, questions that could be asked by young people. Um, And so this book kind of fulfills that that, uh, place. And it was actually very big hearted of Justin to allow us to go in that, direction because he had made all these sort of great toys to play with in this very brightly colored wonderful um adventure world and i was like oh let's make it super sad
1: (laughs) (laughs) which we didn't really plan off the get-go the story really evolved once it was um we had we had a lot of the building blocks in place um it was starting to take shape and I started finishing pages, and Greg started uh, writing, and we were bouncing ideas back and forth. We really didn't know how the story was going to end or what the story was until nearly the finish line. It all kind of came together very organically and evolved um, kind of naturally. So it was not not a planned thing. It just kind of is uh, a result of our collaboration. Mm-hmm.
0: I can remember the moment we were sitting at the Cornerstone restaurant.
1: The double-page restaurant. Yeah, where we figured out
0: that... <laughs> You know a a young person sitting on the floor with the format justin had decided on the format of the book he wanted it to be this big wide screen sort of thing and i said well you know when a kid reads these kinds of books you know and i was just talking about my own experience as a dad watching this happen they often sit on the floor on their stomachs and they're flipping the pages and so they're right there in the whole world and maybe you know justin was like oh well we could do it a quarter of a page of this blackness, oh, maybe a whole page of this blackness, and then we both looked at each other and was like, can we afford the double page spread to just be all this emptiness, all this empty black? Mm-hmm. And we both, I think, got a chill and just said, yeah, we have to do it. And then uh, I think a lot of the story got adjusted to build up to that moment, that two page mm-hmm. reveal.
1: Once we figured out that moment, yeah, it was kind of a linchpin in the ending and yeah. everything else kind of fell into place around it. And this was like, what? Let's say four weeks from the print deadline. Like, yeah, it's close to the end. So good
2: adaptation, improvisation. But your weakness is not your technique. I understand. Like the credit, the credits of the book, as I mentioned, say uh, created by Justin Curry and written by uh, uh, Greg Kamichak, or Gregory Kamichak. Apologies. Um, what What was the process of uh, what? First of all, Justin, uh, why did you open yourself up to the possibility of collaborating?
0: Uh, on yeah, why would you put yourself through that, Justin? I
2: asked myself that over and over. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, as, as Greg often puts it, he got to... Um, I had built a bunch of toys, and then he got to play with them. Uh, and Tonk was a story that I'd been working on on my own for like on and off for a couple of years. I'd never made a book before, and I knew I had a lot of elements that were um, they were they had rough edges and they I think they needed help to be kind of honed down and forged into a proper book and I was familiar with Greg's work and I was familiar, familiar with like him from Comic Cons and stuff like that and he just seemed like a, a really good person to help bounce ideas off of for one because I had been thinking about this for so long without anybody to really um, test the ideas out on and uh, somebody who could help kind of Um, with the direction of of all the pieces that I had. So um, the first couple meetings we had were just over coffee, just kind of talking about the story beats. You know, I I had a a lot of scenes that I wanted to to see in the book, um, but I had no idea how it was all going to get connected. And that's what he kind of came in and did. He he took all those puzzle pieces and found the pieces that went in between them.
0: And and we figured out in those conversations that we had a similar process for making graphic novels is that we, when we come up with a setting, we have sort of scenes that we imagine happening, but we don't know where they fit in. And so he said, you know, I have this scene on the ocean floor with a bunch of giant crabs. I have, uh, you know, I have a scene like this. I have a scene like that. And uh, different stuff found its way into different books. So, uh, you know, some stuff is in rust and water now and some stuff is... Uh, That came up in those conversations where things we stitched together into Cassie and Tonk. This version, stuff from that conversation is furthering its way into the sequels. You know, like there is... um,
1: We did a lot of world building. Yeah. We only, like, showed a small part of it, but we're going to be showing more in the years to come. Yeah, and we're not done with the world and the characters.
0: It, It can take a little bit of practice to build a whole world and then realize that it all can't be in the story. Yeah, so yeah. I think that's some of what I brought to the table was looking at all these great scenes and elements and saying, okay, if it is a story, what's the thread we can pull through this? And when we pull it tight, it all comes together.
2: Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. That, so you've acted, So this confirms one of my questions, which I was going to ask, which was rust and water. Now, I'm not, I will admit, I've fallen behind on reading these books, but they are part of the same universe, basically, to some extent. So Correct. And, and, you're, and you're writing more of them? Uh, more, yeah. more of this type of story?
1: Yeah, so like after Rust and Water kind of um, cemented in my mind a, a couple year plan I have. Um, I, I have a couple, we both have a couple books planned out um, with, with kind of similar themes. There's always a robot and a smaller human counterpart. And um, often the robot doesn't say much or if he does it can't be, he can't be understood. Um, so, coined the series The Silent Guardians, and it's going to be five to seven books um, coming out in the next couple years, and hopefully, eventually, my plan is I wanna do like a 30-pound huge <laughs> omnibus at the end of all this that's way too big for any shelf. Yeah.
0: One of the reasons I think Justin gets things done is he imagines holding the finished product first, oh. and then reverse engineers the process that will allow him to hold the book he wants and I think that, you know, um, there can be a lot to be said for the right kind of visualization when you're working on things.
2: Eye on the prize. That's right. Uh, Gre- Gregory. Uh, I am familiar with your other works as well, Infinitum and The Imagination Manifesto. And when I say that they're totally <laughs> distinct from uh, Cassian Tongue... Yeah, I
0: would say so, yeah. I
2: mean, they're, ve- they're very, very distinct. They're more brutal sometimes. They're more uh, bizarre at times. What was the feeling that you had going into, so- going into making something that was different uh, from that kind of that you are
0: familiar with? Well, I think people are more than just one thing, first of all. We and I, we like to read lots of different things. True. And I think it's a mistake in the world of publishing to pigeonhole authors into one type of, you know, oh, you're a horror writer, that's all you can do. Oh, you do science fiction, that's all you can do. Um, and because these were projects that we were going to be at the helm of, there was no no need to be under those constraints. Um, but also, the tones. If you track my work, you can actually see the moment, I think, pretty clearly where, hey, I'm going to be a dad. Those <laughs> themes show up in the work. And then, hey, I am a father. Those themes show up in the body of work, like not specifically in the works themselves, but in my in my body of work. You can see the moment where I'm doing stuff specifically for adults or teen audiences, and then it suddenly diverges into, oh, here are some other voices that I can share with younger people, because uh, I had this built-in audience at home that was fun to tell stories too.
2: Do, uh, do, uh, do you often write with your children in mind then?
0: Well, we have, um, for a number of years, we've had a habit at bedtime of, uh, I will lie down with them in their room and they'll tell me three random elements. Oh. And then I <laughs> m- verbally just, I just do a little oral, oral storytelling and tell them a story that weaves its way through those three things. And as a result, we, uh, I've told a lot of stories in a lot of different places. There's been a few um, uh, few versions of Cassian Tonk over the years in that way. Um, but yeah, I love telling stories to my kids and with my kids, for sure.
2: God, that takes me back to when I was a kid, suddenly. All Re- of these references.
0: Right, it. it's just fun, and you're making it up. Like Kids don't have any understanding of like what's at stake mm-hmm. when they're that age. They just want a story. And yeah. if a story had a giant frog in it and a wizard and a pickup truck, <laughs> right? do that dad a pickup truck and a wizard and a giant frog you nice. just do your best
2: mm-hmm. uh, now this is the this is the first ever uh, children's book I've actually covered on this show i oh. be perfectly honest and it's such a relief to do something that has universal appeal to it to a great extent it's a simple story uh, with two uh, two characters that you spend a lot of time with and you connect very strongly to and honestly uh, and i was i was not prepared for the ending to be perfectly honest like <laughs> the last revelation but it took me back to like memories of my grandparents they've both uh, pa- they both passed away in uh, the last in the last decade or so but the fact that it it it's a, to some extent the story is even about memory to some extent absolutely Just, like, is remembering yeah remembering all of the things that mattered you didn't think that they mattered before but when you look back on those moments you think this meant something. This meant something to me personally, and you might not even be aware of that. Oh boy. When do you have any kind of uh, sense of when you create when you're creating a story that focuses on those kinds of memories? Do they t- do they ever feel too personal to you or anything like that, or is it, or is it just something that? comes to you naturally like i want to show this image i want to show this image
0: well i think it's both of those things right we had we knew from a fantasy adventure standpoint what would be fun imagery to show i think i'm not mischaracterizing you justin there i don't think Mm -hmm. right we just said oh that would be cool that would be a neat scene that would be great to fun to show um and this book is different in that The words are retrospective. It's an older character looking back on the events of their life. And so we're seeing all of these sort of fun adventure elements with a tone of wisdom rather than a tone of, you know, without a childlike voice. Um, And so it gives it that weight. But to answer your question specifically, um, I think good writing, really good writing, should be uncomfortable for the person writing it. It should be hard to do, um, because it's honest.
2: Yeah, that makes sense, that makes sense. We
1: also, kind of the mission statement behind this book, I'm not exactly sure when this became the mission statement, but eventually at some point we just started saying, we're gonna make people cry. Let's, yeah. Let's make people cry. You know,
0: we were being kind of tongue-in-cheek about it, but we said, you know, like, what are those elements? Like, why, where does sadness find its root? and what can we do to dig as deep into that as we can. And it just came down to stories we all had.
2: You sound like you're looking forward to
0: it. I'm adaptable.
2: Let's talk about this film adaptation.
0: Bum bum bum.
2: (laughs) I was, um, to be, Now, now to start off with, I'm actually going to bring up one parallel that I noticed between this story and another story that I am familiar with. All right. Now, there are uh, certain, there's a certain, there are certain story types that I am fairly familiar with. And even at this con, I'm kind of doing a thematic thing for each day. And since I did my last episode, my last episode, which I recorded here, was on Bioshock, ah. which is a different interpretation of the young girl and the giant girl. <laughs>
0: yeah, kind of that's true. Yeah.
2: But um, one thing that couldn't escape my head, and if I mean this in a very positive way, as a child of the 90s, I couldn't help but think of the Iron Giant to some extent while I was reading that.
0: We're nodding our heads in great <laughs> affirmation to your statement.
2: Okay, good. Did, was there any was there any point during the writing process where you're thinking, okay, how do we separate this from this? How do we make this distinct, this story distinct from the Iron Giant?
0: Um, well, it's the singer, not the song, I think. Fair, right?
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I don't think we were ever too worried. There's um, there was a couple. Couple things in like the the influence bank that were prominent during the making of this book. And the Iron Giant was one. Um, Dragonheart was another movie from my childhood that I, I really loved. and was, was kind I of similar. I love that movie too. I love
2: that.
1: Yeah. Similar themes and then excellent uh, movie. <laughs> the uh, the storytelling um, kind of style and and length of Pixar shorts. Mm. How they're they're short, concise. Um, tight stories that happen with a a couple characters in a brief amount of time and all a lot of them hit you really really hard Mm. and since this was kind of my first foray into uh, sequential artwork and and storytelling I didn't want to do a 250 page graphic novel with eight characters and a a big epic I kind of wanted to keep it um to something like almost like the beginning of uh, two characters Mm. you immediately fall in love with them and then you know there's a kind of get punched in the face later on (laughs) all within five minutes right this is before the movie's even started yeah um yeah so yeah the iron giant was was definitely an influence but it was kind of mixed in with a whole bunch of other things along those lines and uh yeah i think if anything we'd invite comparison or
0: yeah i would invite comparison the other
1: be more things like the iron giant yeah yeah yeah, Yeah, i agree
0: and here's the thing if there's creators listening you know it to be influenced by something is good, it's fine, but uh, what you want to avoid is returning to that influence when it's time to make an editorial choice in your story. So once, we we both love the Iron Giant, but it, once we started working on this, we didn't refer to it, mm. right? We used it as a reason to begin, mm-hmm. but not as a choice to be made as to what to change in the story. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you want to use your influences more like, um, you know, like a star to travel towards rather than a light to see by, mm-hmm. right?
2: Oh, good one. Very good. Um, but but well, since we're on the subject of short films, this is a very short book in terms of the events. There's no actual distinction as to the amount of time that passes between uh, the start of the book and the end of the book. There's some reference to...
0: Yeah, you did that great movie. montage of, I like, like fun things, things happening. Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, if you pay attention to Tonk's design, um, part of like a uh, thing about the robots in this world is they're constantly changing and evolving to some degree. They they grow like people grow. Um, so Tonk's design actually changes in a lot of subtle ways and some not so subtle ways. Um, by the end of the book, he's got a lot more accessories and scratches and and stuff going on. Um, but yeah, we never. We never really discussed we never talked about time. No, they, they hung out, and I think that in part was because we knew we might want to come back to this someday, and it turns out we are going to come yeah. back, um, and we might want to be showing some other things that happened with these two characters that we didn't show in the first book, but we'll show in the next book.
0: And there's also, you know, when you're trying to tell a concise story... Um, Thematically, it also connected to the notion of, uh, you know, how long does it take for a young person to become really good friends with somebody? Mm-hmm. Sometimes, like, three breaths, and they're best friends forever, you know? Like, oh, it just yeah. we wanted that idea that this friendship happens almost instantly, and then that bond, you know, stayed with them. Absolutely. Until the end. Until
2: the end. Until the end. So, um, since, since you brought up that you finished... Uh, would you say it's a first draft or a second draft or where, where are you at in the process of writing this script? The in
0: the adaptation? So in the adaptation, we are, um, there's a number of different things going on. We've got, we're working towards a three minute proof of concept.
2: Okay.
0: Right. So we have written, um, uh, a universe Bible. Justin's put together sort of all the elements that go into the world of Cassian Tonk, um, uh, we have. I'm not sure how much of it we're allowed to talk about.
1: Yeah, we'll probably have to skirt around specifics. Um, but yeah, what we've done is we put together a bible. So if anybody were to come on and write a world, a story in our world, they would know kind of the rules, of the world, and, and how everything works, and how the robots interact with each other, and they could tell their own story um, in that world, and it would it would go together. It would be canon. Yeah. Um, so we put one of those together, which is important, um, and...
0: Uh, well, one of the reticence to like, sort of tell the whole story is I think because we'd have to explain, you need context. So when someone is typically putting together an animated project, they've been sought out by a studio, the studio pays them the option, and then the studio, now that they've paid for that option, um, has all the control of that property. We did Cassie and Tonk as kind of an independent success story, and we wanted to do the animation the same way. So we found an animation studio. Um, We are doing the bulk of the design and editorial content ourselves, and then the studio is providing us with a proof of concept that then we have as a capacity to take to a larger broadcaster and say, maybe you like this, but it's ours, not somebody else's. And that is putting us in an interesting position because there is uh, a number of producers that are quite interested in the project. Um, They're not used to people coming with stuff so far along in the pipeline. (laughs) Um, So we kind of have had the accidental success of, just because we wanted to be megalomaniacs about it and have more control, um, taking it to a a level of professionalism by finding the right partners.
2: sorry it does it does kind of give you an advantage where they see that you've done this much work and they're like okay just leave these guys alone we can uh, well yeah let them do their thing they clearly know what they're doing
0: so a lot of people sort of imagine adaptation as this light that comes shining down from on high and it's just going to solve all their problems and they're going to be given like a bunch of money is just going to float down in a pile that's not Typically, that's not how adaptations work. No. They're very cheaply bought um, development deals that leave the creative force out of it. Um, you know, the artist would almost never get a say no. at that point. So, we're in a great position where, uh, because Justin has built the world, um, he has veto on everything which is a kind of a wonderful place you know people look to me for as the writer and i get to point to him and say no it, you know it's his fault if you don't like it or uh, he's the one that has to answer that question which is keeps that collaborative wheel turning nicely for us both i think yeah. right you get to be the bad guy sometimes and sometimes. just say no in the meetings so tell me about your mutation
1: will i
2: adapt to survive to Since it's being animated, I do have to ask, in terms of an art design for the world, the book has a very distinct uh, art style to it. You have a very distinct art style. I follow follow you on Instagram, so I'm always fascinated by what you have to interpret, like everything from Shadow of the Colossus and different original works that you've worked on and so forth. Do you want to keep that art style as much as possible in the animation
1: that was yeah like i think priority number one when this whole thing this whole snowball started rolling was um kind of a you know a large amount of appeal to my work is is the style before you get to the content almost it's uh the look of it really has a lot of pull so we didn't want to lose that with the animation um and we're kind of we're really lucky living in winnipeg we are surrounded by really talented um 3D artists and, and animators and riggers that um, we can afford a lot more easily than if we were almost anywhere else, like Vancouver, Toronto has, uh, like you know, bigger cities have big talent pools as well, but um, yeah, Winnipeg is kind of like a, an, an untapped well of, of talent, so we were working with some really uh, great people who have done a great job of translating uh, the 2D style into um, 3D models and, and rigs and stuff. So, you know, I was, think the style is definitely going to show through.
0: Yeah, it was cool to meet people on the team who like were familiar with the book and really interested in, in making it look that way. That you was, know, was like, their priority, too. You know, yeah. like,
1: we want to animate this and we want to make sure it looks like the yeah.
0: book. So, mm-hmm. but you know, nothing 2D can be 3D in the same way you know it's just there is there is some translation and so we're just making choices based on um you know what is possible and what is you know what our wishes and and reality there's a little venn diagram where there's a sliver where they all all line up and whenever they can we push for that but sometimes you know you got to let some things go that's what adaptation is about right you're changing it to fit a new medium
2: absolutely absolutely very few people I, know, I talk to realize that sometimes, honestly. Um, t- now, I know that you don't want to give too much away about the actual content of the adaptation, and I will leave that. I, I will, If you don't want to give too much detail about these little questions that I have about it, then you don't need to say very much. But I do have a couple of uh, curious, curious questions to ask about sure, fire away. the expansion of the world, possibly. Yeah.
0: Are there going to be more robot designs? Yes, yeah, sort of. Well, <laughs> so like like what Non-c- we're building
1: right now is um kind of a, a proof of concept, like a test. So we're not building too many new things yet. We're basically we're taking um, a, a small portion of of the world and showing it in an animated space with the purpose of. Uh, later down the road expanding things so we're still kind of at the we're just building blocks right now for things that could be a lot lot bigger and broader um but yeah those we won't really know exactly where things are going for a while yet we're still uh we're still just getting everything ready to to roll
0: and there's a neat so i say like why i made that long drawn out maybe (laughs) is that um, when you rig that, uh, when you rig something for animation, you know, because we're doing three D animation, um, the body language of the creature. Can change entirely Mm -hmm. how people see it and feel with it. So to me, it's almost like there's a redesign of existing elements Mm -hmm. because you're seeing them move for the first time. And
1: then sound design. Oh, the sound design has been so fun. Who's like doing, you know, what the, the bad robots sound like and what Tonk sounds like, you know, when he's just idle and when he starts to move. And like, that's a whole thing that, you know, I never really even thought about until suddenly it was there. And that was a whole new. Like layer of character,
0: you know. Like, what does Tong sound like when he's standing still? Remember, yeah, we is a is a is a strange concept. Yeah, right.
1: We were asked that question. We just kind of stared blankly for like a minute. Like, I you don't know. know. I guess we should think about
0: it. Yeah, you have to make a noise. <laughs> what kind of noise? make? and then I start rumbling and making all these weird robot noises in my throat. No, that's not it. No, <laughs> that's not it. Right. So, yeah, uh, adaptation is interesting because it's it. Opens up the entire conversation again to why you made certain choices.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, now yeah. I have to analyze. A lot yeah, of what you've done. There's limitations to some extent to uh, what you can do on in in just one panel in just one panel of a comic book or something like yeah. that. Yeah. But there's also infinite possibilities of what that one thing could go could be in that panel. But also, and in a movie, you can go even bigger sometimes. And um, I'm just wondering about all of the different elements of the world that could be expanded in this adaptation. Basically.
0: Well, we could probably mention an expansion that's occurring. I'll let that be Justin's news, though. Are we, yeah? I don't know. Are we allowed? <laughs> we could hint at it. We hint vaguely hint at, at okay. an expansion.
1: Um, along with making Because we
0: signed a contract with her, so we, we can... Did. yeah everything Yeah.
1: Everything's... Greenlit? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah?
0: You heard it here first, people. So,
1: um, since we put together this Bible and we started working with an animation team, we started thinking about what other mediums we could expand the universe with. Um, so, that kind of led us to um, reaching out to a writer friend of ours to write a, a short um, young adult novel set in the Cassian Tonk world. Okay. Um, So this story is in very early stages, not necessarily going to um, have Cassie and or Tonk in it, but it will have um, blue robots and the wrens and and kind of be set in the world, and uh, we might skirt around the main story.
0: One of the most exciting parts is that when you bring an author on, you have to leave them room to do what they do, right? So rather than say, here's a whole bunch of things that you must do, we just gave a very short list of things you couldn't do yeah and so when the first draft comes in we'll be as surprised as you are (laughs) to know what happens in the story Mm -hmm. Um, you know based on uh based on her other work we knew that she was more than capable of doing what it is we need and so you know that part is exciting that's an adaptation where we get to sit back and read through it and say oh this is how someone else interprets the world Mm -hmm.
2: Are you going to be more critical of her as a result, or is it just something that you want to let free to some extent?
0: I don't know. I imagine I, us as being freewheeling, but maybe we'll be different when we see that first draft.
1: It, yeah, I have no idea how I'm going to react, right? It's
0: Tune in next podcast.
1: <laughs> I just I know the best projects. Um, the, the, the way to get the best work out of me is to give me um, like a, a shh, a list of guidelines and then just tell me to go to town like i'm going to give you some suggestions and then the rest i'm leaving up to you and that's always how the best projects happen so try to like box somebody in too much i don't think they can really do their best work.
0: no so we've tried to adhere to that in setting up a a system for uh this other author to work on and we're very confident that she's gonna knock it out of the park Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh tentative deadline on that
0: it's Calgary, Comic-Con. 20. So April
1: 20- next year, we hope to have this, yeah. this book. Yeah. In your hands. In your hands.
2: You heard it here first. <laughs> um, one th- there's two more things that I actually like to uh, explore, just about the, uh, first of all, about the world of the book. One thing that I remember hearing on, on your podcast while you were creating the story, initially, one of the things that I was fascinated by, and I love hearing this oftentimes, is that you were at one time considering just making it completely dialogue-free, completely yes. silent?
0: Silent story. Um, what do you even need a writer for? Your girlfriend you said,
1: <laughs> "If it's
0: going to be silent." Ouch! Um, <laughs> it hurts so much.
1: Well, the way we told the story initially was um, with thumbnails and roughs. We did it completely visually first, and like Greg and I both did quite a few. Um, thumbnails and, and roughs of of the pages and then when I started um, putting pages together um, it was just the visuals first and I think somewhere along the line we just we both agreed we need to make sure this works as a silent story and then the words are gonna come last like I think Greg did a rough draft I started working on the book and it wasn't until it was almost fully drawn that he came and did his revised draft to kind of put the words over top but um uh since we've been working together on other books as well that's usually how we we tell the story in visual beats because we're both visual artists and the words come in when we we need them Mm -hmm. but uh, it doesn't make them any less important they're
2: very important
0: no and and you get that um juxtaposition between the word and the image if you use it at the right time Mm -hmm. you know
2: absolutely i love I love hearing that. As a film nerd, I just, I am absolutely enamored with films that are able to tell, films and stories that are able to tell things without dialogue, and there's that rule. A movie should only, a movie should, a movie should be able to tell you its story with with basically, the, with everything mute, basically. Yeah. And uh, how much of that do you think is going, could, could potentially translate into this kind of story. Because one thing that I'm really annoyed with in a lot of children's children's movies especially is that they never shut up.
0: Yeah, I, I also agree with you is that there's a lot of incessant um, babbling that occurs in a lot of um, kids' programming. I think that's just a wrong-headed approach to what they think mm-hmm. like OCD generation requires. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I think that's why I love it. Uh, Wally so much. Like, right. The first 40 minutes of Wally, there's no dialogue or something like. That. And I absolutely love that. And I know people who hated it, like there's no talking in this. Yeah, it's movie. my
0: favorite thing. <laughs> like,
1: that's the greatest thing.
0: So we're hoping to strike a middle ground, you know, in the adaptation for enough quiet moments. Mm-hmm. You know, if if I got, were to get my my Druthers, uh-huh. we'd we'd see as as much storytelling in the body language of the characters as we would in the in the voiceover.
2: Adapt or die. We talk, we talk a lot about your process of adapting your own work and how much it, cha- how much it changes from media, uh, media A to media B and so forth. But you're also both working to some extent with other people's material. Occasionally, yeah. On yeah. occasion. yeah. Uh, you've done a lot of uh, work based on other people's uh, licenses, mm-hmm. video games and movies and books and so forth. And you are working on the uh, graphic novel adaptation of...
0: That is true. Yes, I am. Yeah. <laughs> I have
2: never heard of a adaptation of a band before, but um, well, I feel like you're going to hear a lot more
1: of it. Like It's such a great idea. I'm not, I can't believe more haven't done it.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting because in the 90s, uh, Kiss got really into... Uh, adapting their sort of cosmology into I comics. I,
2: re- I think I remember that. Right? I remember, like, issues of it or something
0: Yeah, like right. That. And so, um, but the baby metal, graphic novel, Apocrypha, the legend of baby metal is exactly that. It's a, it's a story of a legend. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a, you know, I'm a little bit slavish to my study of mythology, so I feel like quite... Uh, in a good position to be working on that project, and also, it's not a—it's an adaptation that is not a. Okay, how do I say? It? There's a limit to what I'm allowed to say about the book before it comes out. But what I'll say is this, because Justin was in the same position recently working for Marvel. Things he wasn't allowed to talk about, still not allowed to talk about,
1: right? For Marvel
0: Cinematic Universe, where you're presented with a concept. And then asked to do your take on it, Which right? is
1: lovely, not being put in that box that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, trust. They saw Greg's work. They they were familiar with Greg's work, and they approached him to work on this because they knew what he could do, and they trusted him to do it well.
0: To do it my way. And the same with Justin is that, you know, Marvel uh, Studios got in touch and said, "We want you to do some work for us." here's a whole bunch of references to work you've done in your style, not a bunch of references to other people's work, please do this, but hey, the stuff that you do, we like, do it for us. Um, So that's, you know, uh, if we just allow ego to run rampant for a second, it's like the greatest part of being an artist is to be recognized for your style and to be asked to do that. Um, If you put your ego back in a box, it's also to remember that style and substance must be in equal measure, right? And so the script for the Baby Metal graphic novel um, is, is awesome. So uh, when I read through the treatment and read through how they were going to do it, and realized that it wasn't, you know, some uh, corporate pamphlet for why people should buy X music, did it feel and, like it was
1: written for you?
0: It kind of did, yeah. yeah. It felt a little bit like, wow. Which I, it, wasn't,
1: it wasn't. It was just you're such a good fit for the project.
0: It, that's how it felt. So <laughs> I'm really proud of it. I hope I do it justice. I'm a little nervous that the fans, you know, um, who are wondering why this Western guy is the guy doing it. I just hope that they like it. Um,
1: absolutely massive fan base. I'm excited for the amount of people that are going to be seeing yeah. this.
0: So there's been a lot of trust placed on me, and I'm just trying to hit the mark as best I can.
2: How do you know that you've met that mark however? Like how do you know you've reached the middle ground where you survive where Never. Surbi- where never. never. <laughs> you, you never know. That's what keeps you up at night. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um,
0: I mean Wait, I turn uh, in pages. You
2: can you can please anyone these days. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean I turn in pages to the uh, to the people in charge and they have very few notes uh, lately and you know Again, there's a difference between a a style note when you're working on a book and a content note. Mm -hmm. And so a style note would be like, I just don't like how you drew this person, right? So you could draw them a bunch of times and still never get it right. Uh A content note is uh, this hair, this style, this thing, I want to look more like this other thing or less like this other reference. I'm being purposely vague because I'm not not until October, I can't give those specifics, but um, content, suggestions are the best kind of feedback you can get as an artist working on a project style suggestions are the worst kind because you can't change your style you got hired for your style
1: style. you don't want to you
0: don't want to change it so it has been almost no style changes and all content changes that have been required and you know those are 100% on me when I miss the mark on something and they say oh hey do you remember this remember we talked about this oh yeah (laughs) clearly I forgot so we just do our best
2: very cool, very cool. So, uh, just to wrap things up a little bit. Uh, first of, first of all, when do you expect the uh, Cassian Tonk movie to be moving forward?
0: Well... When
1: can we talk about...
0: Yeah. So, okay, so the interest of full disclosure, um, what we're developing is the capacity to turn Cassian Tonk into either a full-length uh, animated feature or a animated series okay so we're building the assets and the capacity in place uh and it may yet be none of those things you know like it's a they call it development hell for a reason um but we are learning a lot in the process and we know much better now how to bring our next things to the adaptation stage
1: also important it's um it's an exciting um it's an exciting project moving in an exciting direction but it's one of many irons we have in the fire mm-hmm. and maybe *Cassie and Tonk doesn't end up being like a full length animated movie but we have half a dozen others that might be
0: yeah um, and that
1: now that we've done it once or we, we're potentially doing it once the next time is gonna be easier and the time after that is gonna be even easier. And yeah, we've got a lot
2: of Pretty soon we'll have the Silent Guardian cinematic unit.
0: I love it. (laughs) But you know, like you don't eliminate, you transmute. So whatever we can't get done with the Cassian Tonk animation in this form, Mm -hmm. uh, we make a lot of notes and make a lot of decisions about what we're gonna do on the next thing differently. Mm -hmm. Uh, And part of what's good for both of our hearts, I think, is that we have so much stuff going on that we don't have to put all of our hopes and dreams on this one thing that it allows us to be a little bit more forgiving when it's doesn't hit the mark
2: for 100,000
0: years, it was buried in the snow and ice. Now it has found a place to live inside where no one can see it or hear it.
2: Thank you again.
0: Thanks for having us, guy.
2: This concludes the episode of, uh, adaptational on Cassie and Tonk before you go, Uh, where can people find you on social media and do you have anything that you'd like to pitch uh, or to uh, name drop at the moment?
1: Um, Everything I do online is under the brand Chasing Artwork, so whatever social media or wherever you like to hang out online, I have an account under Chasing Artwork. Um, And then I've got my new art book coming out this August, so that's everything from the last couple years as well as Um, My process, tutorials, um, step-by-steps, and previews of upcoming projects, Uh, that'll be available in August um, on all my sites and at every convention I'm at, which is very, very many. (laughs) (laughs)
0: And uh, I uh, am the only GMB Kamichuk online, um, but I am also the hardest to spell of everybody, so that's (laughs) G-M-B-C-H-O-M-I-C-H-U-K on all social media. Um, um, Our next project together is a book called Dragon Nanny. Uh,
2: Prints in November.
0: Prints in uh, November. uh, I
2: am immediately curious. (laughs) I love dragons, so...
0: So look for us. Thanks.